You're listening to the Bar Business Podcast, where every week, your host, Chris Schneider, brings you information, strategies, and news on the bar industry, giving you the competitive edge you need to start working on your bar rather than in your bar. Starting this week, we're going to go through a three-episode series on menus that sell. So this week, we're going to talk about planning your menu. Next week, we'll go over designing your menu. And then on the final week, we'll talk about executing and optimizing the menu. All this is based around how we can develop menus for your bar that are really going to help drive sales, increase your profits, and give you something that is not just a way for your guests to determine what to order, but is a fantastic sales tool for your staff to be able to present your offerings to your guests. It's really important as we look at menu development, menu design, that we remember that for bars, the right menus presented in the right way is really what's going to drive your sales. So often in bars, people come in, they sit at the rail, and they just order something, and they're going to order the same thing they order at every bar they ever go to. That's fine. And frankly, a lot of your customers will always be that way. But we do have the opportunity to be able to push guests in certain directions, whether it's with our food, with our cocktails, with our beer, wine, whatever it is that we're selling. We have an opportunity to push guests in certain directions that allow us to steer them towards the items that are going to be the best for our business and for our bottom line. So as I mentioned this week, we're going to talk about how to plan your menu. It's really important to plan your menu and determine what menus you need for your bar, what options you're going to give your guests, what you're going to sell, and what you're going to price at before you even worry about designing your menu. I think too often we jump in with the idea that here are these great food items I want to offer before we even consider what food items should I offer. Here's this great cocktail that I think should be on a cocktail list, but what should actually be on your cocktail list? So in my mind, what we need to do before we even discuss what's on the menu is we need to plan out what should be on the menu, not at the item level, but at the category level, and really what that looks like and how we can drive our sales by creating a framework for our menu that is going to provide our guests the best possible experience. Another reason to plan the menu before you actually get started worrying about the items on the menu, what it looks like, anything like that, is that if you start with the menu design, you're going to feel pressure to either fill the page, come up with enough items that you fill out that design, or that design is going to restrict you in that if there's only a place for four or five appetizers, you may only have four or five appetizers where maybe you need 10. So it's absolutely important that we start with planning the menu. So the first thing to do when it comes to planning your menu and what you need on menus is to determine what menus you're actually going to have. So too often, I think we think of, especially for bars, we have a cocktail list, we have a food menu. But are those actually all the menus you need? Do you need other menus in your establishment? Do you need a lunch menu? Do you need a beer list? Do you need a wine list? Do you need a list of all the liquors that you have behind the bar available to your guests as well? And the answer to all of these questions is probably yes. Because here's the thing. When we give our guests options, when we present them a complete list of what's available to them, sometimes they'll make choices that they didn't anticipate making. Sometimes they're going to choose to go in a different direction than they normally do sitting at most bars. So that being said, on the beverage side, I think every bar needs a beer list, a wine list, a cocktail list, and probably a liquor list. And within those, you may actually have multiple beer lists, right? You may have a draft beer list and a um, bottled beer list. And potentially that draft beer list is not actually printed. Potentially that draft beer list is a chalkboard on the wall. 
But you still need that list somewhere and you still need it available to your guests and you still need to think about how many items are on each list and what that's going to look like. Because a poorly executed chalkboard does not sell the same way a very well executed chalkboard sells. So always keep in mind, you need to focus first on which list you need. And for beverages again, I think you need a beer, wine, cocktail, and liquor list always available for your guests. Now, when it comes to food, for most bars, this is going to get a little interesting. Many bars are only going to have one food menu, right? We kind of use it for lunch, dinner, late night. It is the food menu. And sometimes that's sufficient, but oftentimes, actually, it's not. And the reason why I say that is if you're open for lunch, you need a separate lunch menu. And the reason you need a separate lunch menu is, A, you want to be able to offer people some cheaper options like a half salad and a half sandwich or a cup of soup and a half sandwich. Things that are quick, that are easy, that are lunch focused. And that's the other thing that you can do. When you have a lunch menu, you can make sure that the items on that lunch menu are quick and easy for your kitchen to prepare so that you can get people in and out as fast as you can. Because as we all know, if we're serving office folks for lunch, they have a limited amount of time. Generally, they have an hour. So from the time they sit down to the time they get their food needs to be not more than about 15 minutes. And they need to be able to eat and cash out and get back to work. We have to figure out how to fit a complete guest experience in about 40 minutes. So you need a menu that allows you to do that. And your normal food or dinner menu is not going to be that answer. Also, if you're open late at night, maybe your kitchen doesn't prepare everything from 9 p.m. till 1 or 2 in the morning that they prepare, say, during the dinner rush from 5 to 9. So if you're going to have a late night menu, you need to print that. You don't need to just have a regular menu and tell your guests, hey, here's the list of items you can't order. That provides a bad guest experience. If you're going to have a limited late night menu, you need to print a limited late night menu. The other thing I would encourage, and obviously this is going to depend on how much food you sell, but if you are selling a lot of food as a bar, and when I say a lot of food, I mean 30, 40, 50% of your sales is coming from food as opposed to beverages. I mean, if your food sales are in total 5% of your total sales, or they are 7% of your total sales, or even if they're 15% of your total sales, there's no reason to focus on food this much. But for a lot of bars, especially nowadays, You see food percentages in the 30 to 50% range, 60% even in some concepts, if you're more of a pub neighborhood gathering place than necessarily a bar. And if you have that higher food percentage, you're going to want to sell desserts. Desserts are the ultimate upsell add-on item and allow you to squeeze just a little bit more sales out of each and every guest that you have for dinner. If you're going to sell dessert, you need a dessert list. And preferably, if you're going to sell dessert in a bar, That dessert list should be a combined dessert, food, and drink list. Give people the idea to get that Irish coffee with their cheesecake. Give them the idea that they should have a chocolate martini with their chocolate cake. So when you have the opportunity on that dessert list, you want to include drinks as well there. So once you've determined what actual menus you need to have, which menus you need to create and design, in order to give your guests the most choices and the best experience you can, then you have to decide what you're going to sell. And at this step, I'm not referring to deciding the items you're going to sell. I'm referring to deciding the categories you're going to sell. And what I mean by that is, let's take a look at a food menu, because this is probably where we have the most categories with 
wine and beer and cocktails. Generally, we just have one list. It's shorter amount of items with food, though. This gets very complex because we're going to have appetizers. We're going to have salads. We're going to have soups. In a lot of bars, we're going to have sandwiches. We're going to have burgers. We're going to have entrees. There's all sorts of different potential menu categories that we need to worry about. So the first thing we have to do is decide what are those menu categories? What is actually going to be on my menu? Because there's no reason to come up with dishes and with designs and all of that that aren't going to include what's on your menu. Once you have an idea of what those categories are, then it's important to pick the number of items you want to serve in each category. Too often, we just come up with come up with food items, and if we have 10 appetizers, we have 10 appetizers, and if there's six salads, there's six salads. That is a very haphazard way to make your menu. Instead, you need to actually consider how many of these should I have. And in general, when I'm talking with most clients, and it depends upon what your establishment is, food cost percentage compared to your total sales and a number of other factors. Most bars don't need a food menu that exceeds 30 items, 40 items. I really consider that the top. I think if you get upwards to 50 or 50 plus, that's too much to reasonably make for most bars out of their kitchen. And it's going to increase your kitchen labor. It's really not helpful at that point. So to me, 30 to 40 items tends to be that sweet spot with food. So that usually comes down to about 10 appetizers 10 sandwiches, call it five entrees, four or five salads, and some soup. Uh, You may have some more categories. You may have some different ways of looking at it. For instance, we might separate sandwiches from burgers and say have four or five specialty burgers and and five or six different sandwiches that we offer. But really, you want to try to stick to that 30 to 40 range. So depending upon your concept, depending upon what you're trying to do, It's really important to pick out what are those categories and how many items are we going to put in each. Once we know what those categories are going to be, then we want to look at what our preparation method should be. So too often in the bar business, a lot of folks skip looking at this. And it's really important to think about what equipment do I have? What is my staffing like? I mean, if you want to offer high-end food and you want to do seared foie gras and scallops and a bunch of fancy stuff, but you don't have anyone who's ever cooked at that level, you're not going to be able to do it, right? So you have to have food that your staff can prepare. But more than that, because you can always get different staff if you want to change your food, you need food that your equipment can prepare. And it's really important to think about things like fryer space. A lot of bars tend to go very heavy on fried foods, and that's just kind of what people expect in American bars. But if you go high on the fried foods, If you have a lot of fried food, especially if you're doing frozen to fried food that's going to take longer to cook, you need the fryer space. So if you only have one two-basket fryer that's pretty small, you can't have all your items on your menu be fried. You're going to have to do some bake, some grilled, some saute, move that around a bit. And honestly, especially in today's world when people are health conscious, when there are different people with different dietary concerns, having your food items spread across different Preparation methods helps not only in making sure that you don't overload a single piece of equipment, not only in making sure that you have a menu that your kitchen can actually prepare, but it also helps allow your guests greater choice in the experience they are having and in what they want to eat. Because you will have plenty of guests that do not want fried food. So if all you have is fried food, they just won't eat with you. But if you can offer them grilled chicken or a light fish dish, 
they're likely to order that. So it's important that you make sure that you always have preparation methods that will speak to different people and that you're not overloading your equipment. Keep in mind, though, all of this that we've talked about so far, none of this has to do with what items you're actually going to sell. It's about what categories of items you should have on your menu and how you should prepare those items based upon your staff and their skill level and the equipment that you have and making sure that you're not overloading your equipment, but also providing your guests a good variety. It's not about the item. And the reason that is, is because you need to figure out the parameters before you figure out the what. If you figure out the what too early, you'll force the parameters. And we don't want to do that. We want to determine what menu is going to work best before we decide on the individual food items that are going to accomplish that. Now, let's turn to beer, wine, and liquor for a moment. Because unlike food, we're not going to have to worry about how we make things so much. I mean, obviously, we can't have a blended cocktail if we don't have a blender to make it in, which frankly, I <laughs> when I bought my bar, the first thing I did was I took the blender from the bar, I took it back to the kitchen. I said, okay, you guys are going to make salsa from scratch now. And that was my opinion of blended drinks. But if you're in someplace tropical, you're not going to be able to get away from frozen drinks. So you're going to need that blender. But outside of blended drinks, really, uh, when we're looking at a cocktail list, what it comes down to as far as determining what to sell is the skill level of your bartenders and your concept type. Because your cocktails have to fit your concept. Obviously, if you're a neighborhood bar in the rural Midwest, you probably aren't selling a lot of bourbon flips. So you need to make sure your menu fits the location, fits the ideas. And then you also need to look at preparation methods because we don't want to have too many menu items on our cocktail list that say include raw egg because some people are never going to have a cocktail with a raw egg in it. We also don't want to have too much that's too sweet. There are a lot of people that enjoy sweet cocktails, but there are also a lot that don't. And frankly, there's a lot of people that don't want that sugar in their drink, either because they're watching their sugar intake or they just don't want a bad hangover the next day from it. So always make sure when we're looking at a cocktail list that we have different preparation methods involved. When it comes to wine and beer lists, you need to think strongly about the different options you're providing your guests. So one thing that I see all the time, and this is, happens when we have bars that come up with beer lists based upon what people say they want rather than using some logic to kind of gatekeep that, is that you end up with a beer list that is 90% IPAs, let's say. Whatever that popular beer is, that popular beer category is, maybe there's two or three different popular beer categories going on right now, and your list has all of them and only those beers and very little selection otherwise. You always want to make sure that you have a rounded out selection when it comes to beer and wine so that whomever comes in has an opportunity to get what they want. It also makes you seem like a better run bar. And the same thing is absolutely true when we look at wine. You want to offer a wine selection that has multiple options and multiple categories for your guests. You need a Pinot Noir, you need a Merlot, you need a Zin, you need a Syrah maybe. Maybe not, depending on the type of bar you are. But if you're going to have an extensive wine list, you need to hit all the common varietals. You can't just have Cab. You know, on white wine, you cannot just have Chardonnay. You need a Sauvignon Blanc, too. You need a Riesling, probably, because a lot of bars are going to sell a lot of Riesling. 
You need whatever fits your market and your clientele, but you need to make sure also that you have a rounded list so that anyone that comes in the door, maybe someone that's not in your normal clientele group, can still find something they want to drink. Now, that's not to say you have to carry everything. I don't know any reason that most bars would ever need to carry a Gruner Veltliner on their white wine list. Hell, I doubt that many people that go into bars on a regular basis even know what a Gruner Veltliner is. Most of our guests tend not to be aficionados of German white wines. But we need to make sure that for the common varietals of wine, for things that people reasonably ask for on a regular basis, we have our bases covered. That doesn't mean you need 15 Pinot Noirs or that you have to have 12 Sauvignon Blancs. One will suffice if you don't sell a lot of it. One option gives someone an option. But we do want to make sure that we're giving our guests the opportunity to order what they like and the opportunity to really be able to pick a selection that speaks to them. Once we've decided the categories of the items we're going to sell and the preparation methods that we're going to use, and we kind of have this framework for all the menus we need for our food, liquor, beer, wine menus. Now we have to determine what actual products are going to fall into those. And this to me is the actual fun part. And this is also the best part to start involving your staff and to really start bringing them in and making them feel heard. Because even if you don't use every suggestion your staff has, and you won't, even if you only pick things that were your ideas, involving your team helps build camaraderie. And it also gives you ideas you wouldn't otherwise have. I don't know of anyone in this business that is smart enough to write a perfect menu themselves without asking anyone else for advice. You need to involve your team. They're the ones that interact with the guests the most, especially in the front of house. They're the ones that know your equipment in the back of house and what they can reasonably do. They are the ones that can help you determine Have you tried to be too aggressive, not aggressive enough? Does the food you have work for your guests, for your equipment? And your bartenders can help you understand, do the cocktails work for them? Because the last thing you want to do is hamstring a bartender with a bunch of mojitos and muddled drinks that they can't get out of that bar for crap and slows everything down to the point that it destroys your guest experience across the board. So involve your staff as you determine what items you need to sell. And the first step, and this is where we involve the stuff, is brainstorming. Literally sit down and say, okay, what is every appetizer I think would be cool on our menu? What is every entree I think would be cool on our menu? What is every cocktail I think would be cool on our menu? This is just a way to get a list of ideas down. And frankly, I recommend doing your brainstorming not all at once, but do multiple brainstorming sessions. You want to actually spend some time thinking about this, spend some time away from it, come back together. Because if you're doing a group brainstorming session, once you're done with that, everyone's mind's still going to be thinking. Everyone's mind's still going to be coming up with new great ideas. And you want to give people some time to process those ideas and to really develop their thinking in between brainstorming sessions in order to make sure you can get the best ideas and the most ideas written down on paper. As part of this process, it's also really important to go check out your competition. You want to make sure that if everyone in your competitive set If all the bars around you that have a similar concept offer the same food item, well, maybe you should offer it too. I mean, we can't be too afraid of copying people because, well, copying is flattering, A. But B, if everyone else is doing it, there's probably a good reason for you to do it as well. Now, maybe there's not. Maybe everyone else in the market is doing it wrong, but that's highly doubtful. So look at what other bars in your area are serving for their items and then see 
if there are commonalities between everyone in your competitive set, you probably want to incorporate that into your menu as well. Once we've brainstormed, once we've looked at our competition, once we have an idea of what items we may want to offer, generally at this stage, we're going to have tons of potential items. You know, on a cocktail list, you if you have innovative bartenders, they may have come up with 50 items, but maybe your list only needs 12. Maybe it only needs eight. On the food end, you're going to come up with way more food items than you can actually prepare and put on the menu. And we didn't worry about that because brainstorming is all about getting these ideas. And before I continue, one very, very important thing to always do. Every idea you ever have, you need to record. All this brainstorming needs to get written down somewhere because when you go to change a menu, when you go to optimize a menu, you're going to need ideas. And why not go back through the ideas you've already had and see if you can figure out a way to do them or maybe an idea that wasn't good because it was summer is now good because it's winter and it's a heartier dish and perfect for a winter menu. So never get rid of your brainstorming because that brainstorming will come in handy in the future always. But once you have that brainstorming done, we're going to start narrowing down the list. And the first thing I like to do when it comes to narrowing down brainstorming is to start with the idea of what items are not a perfect match for this establishment. What items don't really work for your bar? For instance, maybe one of your appetizer ideas was to have a chicken fajita quesadilla. Great appetizer idea for a lot of neighborhood bars and a lot of concepts that are not narrow. But in an Irish pub, a chicken fajita quesadilla, as good as it may be, doesn't really fit. Or even nachos, for that matter, in an Irish pub. Nachos may not be the way to go. Now, maybe you do Irish nachos and you do thicker cut potatoes that you fry and then top those off with corned beef and cabbage so that you have a more Irish-themed nacho-like dish. But if food doesn't fit your concept, that is the easiest thing to cut off from your brainstorming list from the top. Then I look at ingredients. Everything on a menu you want to have used in more than one dish, whether it's a cocktail menu or a food menu. If you have a cocktail that requires creme de violette, in most bars, that violette will never be used outside of that one individual cocktail. So the question is, is that cocktail worth it on your menu? It reminds me of a country club that I worked in years ago. And the food and beverage manager prior to me had had a few cocktails on the menu that used PIMS. And in actuality, it was one. It was He had one cocktail on a December holiday menu that used PIMS. And he had decided to buy an entire case of PIMS. Well, I think when I took over, no one was purchasing PIMS. And we still had 11 bottles in the back. That's just inventory sitting on the shelf that, frankly, as far as I was concerned, was dead inventory. I ended up coming up with a few PIMS-based cocktails just to move through it. But it really never should have been ordered in the first place. PIMS never should have been involved in a cocktail where that was its only use. And especially if you're going to have a cocktail that uses one type of liquor, and that liquor is specific, and you don't really think you're going to sell it outside of that cocktail in the future, don't buy a case, buy a bottle. Some of this is about controlling your purchasing when it comes to liquor. But when we think about food, especially when we think about food proteins, shrimp, let's say, if you have shrimp cocktail and that's the only item on your menu that uses shrimp, shrimp does not have a great shelf life. It's pretty perishable. So do you really want to use shrimp on that menu 
where you're probably going to end up wasting shrimp, throwing it away, and that's a very expensive thing to throw away. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. Maybe you really want that shrimp cocktail, so maybe you also offer shrimp tacos. Now, we have two places to use the shrimp. It makes a little bit more sense. But better yet, maybe you just go with shrimp tacos. And for those tacos, you usually use a frozen pre-breaded shrimp so that there is zero waste involved. So we need to look at ingredients. Food ingredients, we need to look at ingredients for cocktails and make sure that we don't have any ingredients that are going to cause us to have increased cost, that are going to provide opportunities for there to be excessive waste, and that everything that is going on that menu, preferably, is used in three, four, five different spots, but at least twice. Never have an expensive liqueur, never have an expensive protein that is not used in more than one spot on your menu. Now comes the most fun part. Once you have that item list narrowed down, once you've determined, hey, here is what I actually think could all be winners on my menu, now it's time to test it. Obviously, with a beer list, with a wine list, you don't need to test. But with a cocktail list, you absolutely need to test. You need to make the drinks. You need to try them. For your kitchen, you need to test every single item. And we're not just testing the recipe, but we are. We're not just testing the preparation method. That's part of it. We're also testing how easy it is for our staff to make. How reasonable is it for them to be able to produce this time after time after time, especially if they're in a rush, especially if they are otherwise in the weeds. Is this something they can pull off? And if it's not, you don't want it on your menu. Don't play to stretch everything to its limits. Play to your strengths. So when you're testing, yes, we worry about presentation. Yes, we want to worry about getting that recipe absolutely perfect. Yes, we want to look at every single part of how that's made. But we also want to look at, is it reasonable to make this while we're in a rush? Is it reasonable to make this while we're in the weeds? And so what that testing is going to do, A, it's going to give you some good time eating and drinking. But B, it is going to allow you and your staff to make sure that everything that's going on that menu is going to be awesome. So during the testing process, you are going to cut down that list even more. But generally speaking, once we get past that testing process, there are still too many items for each category that we should reasonably be putting on our menu. And this is when you have to absolutely stop yourself from just saying, well, I'm going to put it all on there. This is all great. Don't do that. Go back to what you determine to be the optimal number of items in each item category on your menu, whether that's your cocktail menu or your food menu. And you're only going to have that number of items period. So if you have more than that that have made it to this stage, what you're going to need to do is cut that list down again. And the best way to do this is to actually just bring your team in, bring a group of your team in, doesn't matter, for the cocktails, for the food, whomever makes sense to involve, and essentially allow them to vote on it. Because there's nothing that you have at this point that shouldn't be able to be great on your menu. Allowing your staff to vote on what Items actually from your shortlist make it onto your menu gives them more buy-in. It gives them more passion about what they're selling. It makes it easier for them to sell those items because they're the things that they like the most. So this is really a time to involve your team and to build a stronger team by allowing your team to make some of the final decisions on what actually makes it onto the menu from the shortlist that you've developed. 
But also at this stage, we want to refine down to the exact items we want, but we also want to keep a short list of alternates that are ranked because our next step is going to be pricing. And if we run into issues in the costing and pricing of an item, we may have to still throw that item out and pick a different item. And when it comes to pricing, the biggest thing we always have to remember is cost matters. Percentages matter. Now, some items are going to be a higher cost percentage. Some items are going to be a lower cost percentage. So we also need to keep in mind what we predict our sales of different items may be. And to some extent, it's very, very difficult to guess this out of the gate until you have some of these items on a menu and you can really talk about optimizing what you're offering. And that's what we're going to dive into in the third week of this three-part series. But for now, let's just say we have to make sure that our cost of each item is around or does not exceed our optimal cost percentages. And that's true for cocktails. That's true for wine. That's true for beer. That's true for every single list that we are going to put out. We have to look at our percentages and we have to determine what our cost, ideal cost percentages are and then back into what our prices should be. Now, something that you absolutely have to consider and something that a lot of people don't actually go through the full steps of doing is that when we're talking cocktails, when we're talking food, we absolutely have to make sure that we are including every single little ingredient that goes into that dish, that goes into that cocktail when we go to cost it. If you cost all your cocktails without costing the the garnishes in that cost, you're never going to make the cost percentage that you should your theoretical cost percentage will not meet what your actual cost is. If in pricing all your food, you never consider things like the butter you're using to saute something or the oil in your fryer, all that contributes to your food cost that needs to be built in. Now, there are a couple different ways to do this. You could, on one hand, say, well, my ideal cost needs to be 30%, so I'm going to actually structure it so that my cost is 28% because I know that additional butter, that additional fryer oil, those items are going to eat up about 2%. That is one way to handle this. The other way to do it is to actually cost that in, to actually say, okay, uh, when I saute this chicken breast, I use a tablespoon of butter and a tablespoon of butter costs me this much. So I have to add this into the cost of the item. But the point here is you need to be very careful that you include every single little thing that is used for every cocktail and every food item when you go to price it. Otherwise, your pricing and your cost percentages are going to be wrong. So really, the first step to pricing is costing and to really making sure that you have concrete recipes and that you've included every single ingredient, every single little thing involved in that cost. And then from that cost, we're going to back in to a price. So frequently, the the real easy way to do this, assuming that you have that cost that's very, very specific, is to say, well, this item to make it cost me $2. I want my cost percentage to be 25%, so I should charge $8. Very simple math here. Cost me two, I need to charge eight. Obviously, that's a very simple example because I picked numbers that are easy math, but it's not difficult to price things if you have solid cost percentages to work backwards from and you have solid KPIs established to determine what those cost percentages must be. Not everything needs to rely on percentage, though. And this is something to keep in mind when we start talking about really high-end ones, really high-end liquors that you may have behind your bar. If we only base our prices on cost, if I have a $100 bottle of wine and I need a 25% wine cost, 
I have to sell it for $400. Now, chances are you don't actually need to sell it for $400 because if you think about it, there's no difference for your servers, for your staff from opening a $100 bottle of wine or a $5 bottle of wine. For them, opening that bottle of wine is the same regardless of the wine in the bottle, regardless of how much you can charge for that juice. And the same is true of high-end scotches, high-end bourbons. It's no more difficult to pour a very high-end expensive bourbon on the rocks than it is to pour a very cheap bourbon on the rocks. It's the same activity, the same steps. So in addition to looking at cost percentages for all of our items, for our more higher-end items, we want to look at contribution dollars. That is to say, how much money am I making on this sale in just pure dollar numbers? So for instance, if I have a bottle of house wine and it costs $5 for that bottle, I want a 25% cost when I sell the bottle. So I sell the bottle for $20. I make $15 contribution dollars on that bottle of wine. Now, as I mentioned, there's no difference in selling that bottle of wine and selling a very high-end bottle of wine. So in theory, you could price all your wine so that you make the same amount of money per bottle. And so a bottle that costs you $100, you could charge $115 for. You're making the same amount of money for the same work as that house wine. Now, obviously, not a lot of bars and restaurants want to do that. You can look at this as an amazing way to give yourself a competitive advantage above your competition. One thing that I have always liked doing with all of the establishments that I've run is to cap my wine list markup. If the house wine is $5 and I'm charging 20 bucks, I have 15 contribution dollars. Oftentimes, I think with wine, one of the best places to cap your contribution dollars is about 50 bucks. So that $100 bottle of wine, now you're only going to sell it for $150. But at $50, you're making three times, over three times, what you made on the same amount of work and the same effort for that house bottle of wine. So really, it's a great deal. Maybe you go 60 so that you're capping at four times your lowest bottle of wine. But the point here is that what that allows you to do is offer a great experience for your guests. It allows you to offer something to them that they expect to pay way, way, way more for, that you're giving them a hell of a deal on. But when you actually think about the amount of work required, when you actually think about the trouble that your staff goes through to provide that to them, you're making more money than you do on anything else without any other work. So it provides a nice win-win opportunity for both you, your team, and your guests, and it increases the amount of money your staff makes. If they can sell a $150 bottle of wine as opposed to a $60 bottle of wine, that's a lot more tip for them. And it's no more work and it's saving your guest money and it's allowing you to sell more, right? It's raising the amount of money that's going in your pocket as well. So you win, your guest wins, your team wins. It is an all around great thing when you can make that happen. Also remember, always compare your pricing to market. Make sure that you're not going way above or way below your market in anything that you were selling. One final note here before we wrap it up. When it comes to your pricing, always consider tax. Often in the bar business, we are including tax in the price of our items. So let's say you're selling a domestic beer that costs you a buck a bottle and you want a 20% cost on your bottle domestic beer. So you're going to charge $5 for that bottle. Perfect. There's your 20% cost. It's a bottled beer. You're never going to really have an issue there. Except for one thing. If your tax is 8%, 
where does that 8% come from? So you charge that five bucks and now you've lost 8% off the top. So your 20% is really 28%, period. So what you really have to do is charge five and a quarter for that beer in order to maintain the same percentage. So never forget about tax. You need to add tax in if you are going to include that in your cost when you do all of this. So first determine your ideal cost based upon your percentage and then add that tax factor back in because if you don't charge those taxes, you're going to be paying them out of pocket and it's going to drastically, drastically hurt what you're looking at in terms of your beer, wine, liquor, or food cost percentage, depending upon where that is that you've decided to include the tax. So I know we covered a lot today. This is one of our longer episodes. I really would encourage you to go back through if you didn't have a chance. Take some notes, write some of this down, because it's really important when we're going to design a menu, when we're going to get a menu that's going to sell best to our guests, that we go through all of this planning. This planning really does lay the groundwork needed to be able to make money. If you really think about it, if you don't charge the right amount, you can't make the right amount. And then none of the rest of anything that we talk about matters. The most important thing you do as a bar owner is determine the prices you're going to sell things for because that determines your revenue. And if that part of the equation is not properly set up, nothing else matters. So really take some time. Think about how you plan out your food items, your cocktail items, and even your beer, liquor, and wine, and how you present that to your guests. Because that is going to be one of the main determining factors in what you do and in what you are able to achieve with your bar. With that said, I hope you guys have a great week. And I will talk to you again next week when we go through the second part of this, designing your menu. So the actual physical menu design itself, now that we know what we want to put on it. Have a great week. Talk to you later. Thanks for listening to the Bar Business Podcast. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Check out our website at barbusinesspodcast.com and join our Bar Business Nation Facebook group for more strategies and tips.